because people shouldn't be shocked in 2013 or 2020 to hear a man say men should challenge other men who are acting out in sexist and abusive ways towards women and girls. Welcome to another episode of Good is in the Details. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dalski, and I will be joined once again by the very witty, very talented LA lawyer, Rudy Salo. And this episode is very cool for me because somebody I really respect is Tom Keith. He's been on the show twice now, one about bully culture and one about gender norms. And Tom, in both of those episodes, had talked about who influenced him. And he is a scholar activist by the name of Jackson Katz. I checked out Jackson's TED Talk a while ago, and I have shown it to my students. It is really an incredible piece. I highly recommend it. He is talking about violence against women and making the case that this is a men's issue and that the way we normally talk about it is though it's a woman's issue. And I reached out to Jackson. He was very kind, very generous with his time. It's absolutely lovely to talk with him. I'm looking forward to sharing this with you. He also has a lot of work. He's worked in film, and he has also, I read one of his books, The Macho Paradox. He has another book out called Man Enough. And yeah, it was just a joy to be able to talk to him. Thank you, Jackson, for coming on the show. And I just want to make one note is that this was recorded a little while ago, And as I'm preparing this, there is the news about uh, Trump and the first lady contracting COVID. I just want to say that good is in the details, wishes the first family well, a swift recovery. And for our listeners to know that there is some criticism of Trump in this episode, but that we can hold both of those things together. They're not mutually exclusive. We can uh, wish somebody a safe recovery and also be critical of them as a politician. Just that note. Uh, I also want to remind everyone we have a Facebook page. If you want to keep updated, keep in touch. We also have an Instagram at good is in the details pod and we have a Patreon. I just posted a new book for the book club. So join the book club. Go to patreon.com slash good is in the details. All right. Now here's Jackson. Something I wanted to know, especially since I have a lot of philosophy students who will end up listening to the podcast, is that since you have an undergrad in philosophy, is there anything from philosophy that has filtered its way into your work now that has to do with the approach to domestic violence as a men's issue? Only everything. Um, uh, philosophy, I mean, I, I like any philosophy uh, major in the past uh, probably half century, I can, I'll make this bold, generalized uh, comment has gotten the same kind of commentary, especially when I was a young guy, a young college student. What are you going to do with a philosophy degree? As if someone like me hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me or others that there was reasons other than getting a practical pre-professional certification of some kind or degree of some kind so that you could get a specific job of some kind. It was obvious to me from the beginning that you take philosophy or you major in philosophy for reasons other than being credentialed to do a specific profession when you graduate. It's, a, it's the same reason why a classical liberal arts education is so valuable. It's you learn critical thinking, critical ways of arguing and, and recognizing the flaws in other people's arguments. It helps for verbal communication, written communication. Just in a general sense, I feel like I'm well prepared, even as a major in college, rather than I didn't, I went on and got a PhD, but not in philosophy. But I felt like through the rigor of having to think critically and logic classes and rigorous argumentation and being forced to back up your arguments and seeing the flaws in others, 
arguments, I, I think it's served me in every thing, single thing that I've done, especially intellectually, but also personally. I do want to say if there's any uh, young philosophy students uh, listening to this, which I hope there is, just deflect. When people make those comments, it's usually out of concern or ignorance or some mixture thereof. I used to help jokes. I used to say, uh, you know, somebody has to write the fortune cookies, right? <laughs> you know, but it was, but, but the, the follow-up line is that all those skills that I just enumerated transfer into virtually everything. And so in, in my work on men's violence against women and thinking about it as a systemic and global problem and world historical problem, all the ways in which my both scholarship and activism and public speaking and writing have contributed to that work. My undergraduate training in philosophy is, is of a piece with all of that. And it helped set a good foundation, I think, a really solid foundation for me intellectually, politically, and other ways. So I think it's a great thing. And I think everybody should take philosophy classes. Not that everybody should major in philosophy, but everybody should be exposed to rigorous intellectual stimulation through you know, philosophical training, even if it's just taking a course here and there. Hey, Gwen, yeah. I'd like to I'd like to make a comment if you don't mind. Um, that's the first time I've actually ever heard a concrete answer of any substance from uh, anything related to a philosophy question. Because my problem with philosophy is you never get an answer to a question. So Jackson, I'd like to commend you for actually <laughs> answering a question. God bless you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it really comes through in your TED talk, especially just when you say I'm old school and I'm just going to write this stuff up. And that analytic skill of just going through the process of the change in narrative and the change in language, even when we talk about domestic violence, I mean, this is the type of thing that we go over in our critical thinking skills. I want to ask you before, before we get into that, did... I'm just curious, did the, it's had over 4 million views. Does that surprise you? When did you realize, oh my God, this is a thing that people are interested in and people are responding to? Sure. Well, I mean, in the room when I did the talk, I thought it went over well. It was in a, a nightclub in San Francisco. It was during the day, but it was in a club and it was um, like 125 to 150 people. And I thought it went over well and I got some good feedback. People came up to me. That was really good. You know, so I knew that I knew that I, you know, had connected a little bit, but then it's a TEDx talk. And, you know, TEDx, initially it was TEDx. It was when it went viral, the TED site uploaded it to the TED.com site. So it, it sits in two different places. One is the TEDx FIDI Women, Financial District Women site and, and the, on YouTube and the other place is the TED site. And so in aggregate, it's, it's gotten, you know, four and a half million views. But initially it was just, you know, getting a few thousand views. This is in early 2013 when it was put on um, YouTube and then it went viral and it, we got like 600,000 hits within about, I don't know, two or three months. And that was when I started realizing, wow, this connects with a lot of people. And, and one of the things that it, that it has you know, certainly struck me as notable in the last number of years, and certainly in the first few years that it was out, was how few people, not in the, only in the United States, but all over the world, had ever heard a man say the most basic things about men's violence against women. It was, to a certain extent, it wasn't completely shocking to me, but it was, it was notable to me. Because I knew in the course of my work for the last, you know, 35 years, that I would go into rooms all the time and say things that were, people were a bit taken aback that a man was saying them. But some of the stuff that I said in my TED Talk was so basic. To me, it was like greatest hits kind of compilation. And it was like so basic. Men need to stand up and speak out against men's violence against women. Men need to challenge other men, just like white people need to challenge other white people around racism. And heterosexual people need to challenge other heterosexual people who are acting in heterosexual sexist ways and such really basic stuff like that 
And the kind of feedback that I started getting from all over the world, and that's one of the, you know, the great things about technology, right, is that it's no longer you're just in a small room. You're in a small room that then goes out into every corner of the globe, if you will. But it was amazing to me how much feedback I would get from people. And it was often women, I have to say, like, oh, my God, I've never heard a man say these things. Oh, my God, you just validated what I've been trying to say or saying and not being heard saying, you know, for all these years. Oh, my God, I've never heard a man say these things. And I have men who say, thank you for saying this. And, it, you know, it's good to hear another man say these things. And there's a solidarity there. But it, it just reminded me how badly my work and my movement, if you will, of men has been in getting beyond our small circles and into the larger conversation and how much of an uphill fight that is. Because people shouldn't be shocked in 2013 or 2020 to hear a man say, men should challenge other men who are acting out in sexist and abusive ways towards women and girls. People shouldn't be hearing that as a revelation or as a, as a major sort of moment. That should be just obvious and commonplace, but we're not there yet. And so, Part of what I was, you know, what I took from all that is that we have to step up our work, we have to scale up our work, we have to be more creative and entrepreneurial and aggressive and in trying to get out the, the message that it's unfair to put the burden on women's shoulders to fight back against men's violence against women when the men are the ones who are doing it. And women have enough to take care of themselves and, and their children and, and men and, and others but to take care of the victims and survivors of the harassment and the abuse, men need to step up and start saying, this is our issue. And that's, you know, that's a conversation that will last for decades and centuries before it becomes completely normalized. And I know that I'm just part of a, you know, a historical sort of process. And I'll go to my grave feeling like we, we have so much more to do. There's so much more to do than we can possibly do in one lifetime. Jackson, uh, a couple of things that struck me about your about that particular TED talk. Um, one thing when you were talking about victim blaming, you use the board and you did some basic grammar sentence construction. And you did you basically what you broke down what the difference is between the passive and the active voice. And I, and I teach law school and I, I've taught legal research and writing in the past. I also teach contract drafting now. So this is still relevant to what I'm saying. Basically, when you take the passive voice, your example was it was either Harry or, or yeah, John. John, John, John hits Mary. And then, you, and then you, you change that around. And it was Mary was hit by John. You take that away as Mary was hit. And then it became, you know, Mary is a victim of that. It was really interesting because one of the things that I, that I used to teach in my legal writing was, look, if you ever want to take the focus away from a bad actor, you use the passive voice. And, and you know, as lawyers, when you're putting forth a defense of an alleged criminal or, or somebody that's in a civil suit, that's what you do. You, you manipulate the language, you manipulate sentences in order to focus it away from the person that you're defending. That was one thing that struck me. It was just like, wow, like th this is, here it is in action. This is how that happens. And number two, the fact that this talk was given in 2013 and you get to the end and you're talking about killing the messenger and you keep the current system in place. I don't mean to be getting political here in any way, shape or form, but that was in 2013. And we clearly have going. a president and, and a movement that is not only trying to keep the current system in place, but is trying to bring back the horribleness of other systems. And it's just, it's just striking to me that how do you feel now seeing that that was given in 2013 and the place that we are in this country now? Can I piggyback on that real fast? Because I thought we were going to go is that Jackson, I was wondering what you were thinking when the Access Hollywood tape came out and the excuse that that kind of language that Trump was using was locker room talk. And you have the bystander effect 
in place right there. We're watching it unfold exactly what you're talking about in your TED talk where Trump was not interrupted. So along what Rudy was saying, after your talk and then you see what's unfolded now, what is going through your mind? <laughs> well, talk about a, a giant opening for a, a diatribe. I, I'll, I'll restrain <laughs> myself to a certain extent because there's so much to say in response to both of these questions. Let, let, let's put it this way, way before I did my TED talk. I mean, I've, I've been an activist, a social activist on issues of anti-sexism, anti-racism, you know, and any number of different, you know, sort of progressive social movements, both as a scholar, well, scholar activist. I, I see myself as a scholar activist, and I have been from the you know from the beginning. I haven't seen a separation between my academic or intellectual work or scholarship on the one side and activist stuff because I think that's one of the problems. I think, frankly, that's one of the problems in our society is that disjuncture. I think there's lots of really smart people who, and and I understand their point of view. I don't agree with it, but and I certainly don't. It doesn't jibe with my own interests. But who see their, themselves as scholars whose goal is to advance human knowledge and inquiry and, and somehow that can be divorced from material reality. I don't buy that. But anyhow, I've, I've always saw myself as sort of straddling these, both of these worlds and trying to be as active as I can with my scholarship and certainly um, political activism is part of that. So like Trump, I mean, I, I'm making, you know, I have a film coming out in early September that colleagues and I have been working on based on my second book, which is called Man Enough. And the subtitle, which is, right now being debated for the film is something about um, the American presidency and, and white male identity from Nixon to Trump. And it's all about white men. And essentially the idea is that arguably the single most important factor in pushing the country to the right over the past 50 years has been white men's abandonment of the Democratic Party and the New Deal coalition such as it was, even with some of the complicated racial politics of the New Deal, it's white men have been moving to the right. And that's why the country is in such tough shape. That's my thesis and that's our thesis in this film. And so none of this really surprises me. I mean, I think, for example, Donald Trump in this telling is the most recent and caricatured extreme example of a phenomenon that's been happening for 50 years now. He's a caricature of some of the features of white masculinity, threatened white masculinity, throwback white masculinity, uh, you know, white men who are threatened by not just racial and ethnic integration and immigration, because I think that's what a big part of the missing a big part, a big missing piece in the discourse, in the mainstream journalistic discourse, as well as discourses on the progressive uh, uh, left about what's been happening in terms of the rise of white supremacy, white nationalist movements in Europe and the United States over the past you know, number of years, almost exclusively in the mainstream discourse, it's about race and ethnicity and white panic, if you will, in the face of this you know, newly energized and demographic shift that's happening. And I think that's obviously a, a huge part of it. But it's also white men, not just white people, white men's resistance to feminist change and challenges to white male centrality and authority, both in the family and the society at large. It's heterosexual people, especially men, resistance to the LGBT challenges to heteronormative power. But the gender and sexual stuff, which sits right close it's marbled into the racial and ethnic stuff, often gets left aside in the mainstream discourse. And we just talk about white people being threatened. It's a white identity movement, Trumpism. I don't think that that's true. I think it's a white male identity movement. And to your point, Gwen, about the, um, about the Axis Hollywood tape, I mean, I think one among the many tragedies of the 2016 election, and I think it was a tragic election for people who care about, you know, in my estimation and many others I know, care about Life, liberty, love, other Life, people, liberty, love. I can, but the list is long, sorry. That's right. Human rights, the future of uh, the ecosphere. 
I mean, some big things, it was a tragedy, but one of the things, one of the, say, tragedies within a tragedy is how many, um, when you listen to the women, for example, who ended up supporting Trump, and I, and I would like to explain that in a second, the white women, because I think that's been wildly overstated to the exclusion of the accountability of white men, who are the primary base of Donald Trump. White men are his most singular supportive group are white men, secondarily white women. But anyways, so many white women, when asked after the Access Hollywood tape, how can you support this guy? Or after the election, when they were asked, how could you support this guy for president? They said things like, that's just how guys are. That's how just guys talk like that. And so Donald Trump's response, it's locker room talk, was part of that sort of narrative. One of the ways that I interpret that conversation, if you will, is how low an opinion so many women have of men that they just think you just got to settle for it because guys are like that. Guys are idiots. Adult men talk like absolute kind of cavemen and that's normative. To me, that's the opposite of saying that white men are strong and powerful. It's like saying they're pathetic because adult men talk like that. That's normative. And you know the phrase boys will be boys, of course, right? So boys will be boys is often said in defense of bad behavior by boys and men. People will say, well, what do you expect? Boys will be boys. Got to give them a break. Boys will be boys. And they say that even again, in response to bad acts by adult men. And my argument, and I'm not the only one who has said this, is that it's actually an anti-male statement to say boys will be boys, because it suggests that boys slash men are not ethical beings who can make ethical choices or have moral values and who have ethical and moral decision-making powers. We're just like kind of walking testosterone uh, you know, factories who can't really control ourselves, so you should give us a break. That's the opposite of the idea that somehow men are rational beings, intellectually superior somehow to women. It's like ridiculous. The contradictions are all over the place. So if you believe that men are rational beings who can make ethical choices, then don't say boys will be boys. And if you, so it's, it's really weird. Feminists are the ones who never say boys will be boys. You know why? Because feminists have more respect for men than to think that we're just beasts. And yet feminists get accused of being anti-male and right-wing men and women somehow are they, they get, present themselves as the defenders of men because they think that we're so limited. It's topsy-turvy land. I have been thinking about that because even the concept of Trump being masculine seems terribly bizarre to me because when I think about um, old school concepts of masculinity, and you know, Rudy, you've heard me mention, like, I love the show, I Love Lucy. And there you have very clear gender roles. Ricky Ricardo is definitely masculine and macho, but that does not resemble at all what is considered this boys will be boys type thing. So without assigning a value judgment to masculinity as such, it seems that it represented even a, a physical strength and intellectual strength. And women were portrayed as being emotional and not having, and that that was a negative thing and not having the capacity for being methodical. And I started to notice this shift. I think it was when I saw the film, Mr. and Mrs. Smith with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, where they're both assassins. And she was, her character was the one that was methodical and cool and collected. And his character was the one who said, go by instincts, just fly by the seat of my pants. And then uh, with Harry Potter, Hermione is the smartest one. She's the intellectual. The, the other characters are kind of like, okay, we'll listen to her. So 
I'm wondering where this shift happened, where even now, like with the discussion about science, that that's not even considered masculine anymore to go by data. It's like, no, I'm just going to go by my gut instinct. How the hell did that happen? What are we talking about when we're talking about masculine? I mean, Trump isn't even physically like... I don't know that he could, you know, lift a training bar off the floor. Like, I don't even know, like physically, there's nothing masculine about him. And then intellectually, um, the airheadiness is stunning. Didn't he just call Thailand, Thailand? He did. He did. Yeah. No, no. Did you Brent, hear I that? God, this is something okay. that I kind of obsesses me. And I think it's been under discussed in the, anything like the mainstream discourse is that this topsy turvy land, as I said earlier, about the rational emotional binary that somehow women are supposed to be the irrational ones, their emotions get the best of them, whereas men are supposed to be in the traditional sexist uh, understanding, and yeah. men are supposed to be the, the rational ones. What, yet when you look on virtually every issue that relates to, say, science, like climate change, women are the ones who are much more rational, and men are the ones who are much more emotional, in, in my opinion, by far. And men's attraction to fascism is, to me, all about emotion. It's all about wanting to be identified with a sort of a larger sort of power and an ethno-nationalism that makes them feel better. That's all about emotions. Rationally, fascism gives us mass death and destruction in real life. And it's not a rational response to the complex racial and ethnic makeup of our society or the world. It's emotional. Yet, somehow the Rush Limbaugh's, or the Rush Limbaugh's of the world, the conspiracy theorists of the world, the Donald Trump's of the world can continue with a straight face to present themselves as manly. It's to me, it's more like comic opera than it is anything serious. If it wasn't so serious in its implications, it would be satirically, it would be, it would be, it would be humorous. It's so ludicrous. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I mean, I know that you're podcast and your, you know, whether it's your audience as well as your the participants, a lot of them are in the philosophy world or at least take the world of ideas seriously. I mean, let's talk about some of the sexism in the, in the you know, philosophical profession and in the, in the academic philosophy world. There's some of the men who are brilliant are also extremely sexist. And some of the, I think some of the great sort of feminist philosophical challenges to white male centrality and white male philosophical centrality over the past 50 years is part of the story that in 100 years or 200 years when, let's hope, humans can look back at this period and see some of the way that philosophy was done up until the 19, roughly the 1960s, with the exclusion of women's voices, with the exclusion of feminist critiques of male objectivity claims within academic philosophy, similar to the uh, you know, racial uh, politics around intellectual inquiry and the north-south global debate, you know, like the, the exclusion of southern hemisphere philosophical thinking in the mainstream of sort of engagement in, in a world sense of philosophical voices. I mean, all of this stuff is happening, incredibly happening in our time, right, the last half century. And I think part of what you see, and I, I'll, I'll bring this back to Trump and then I'll stop, but part of what you see is there's, to be oversimplified, two different ways that, say, white men can respond to all these things that are happening, whether it's in within philosophy, but also more broadly in the larger society. One is to hunker down, resist, try to go backwards, you know, look backwards to try to recapture some lost glory, try to maintain some, you know, some centrality, make America great again. 
put white men back on center stage again. That's when the country was great, when white men were the center of everything. That's one response, and that's obviously politicized by the, you know, the, the Republican Party in the United States and the right-wing parties throughout Europe and such. The other one is to say, you know what? Part of being a, a, an active human being with a functioning brain is to adapt to changing circumstances. It's you know, Charles Darwin 101, it's adapt to, to local environments, successfully adapt to local environments. This is a racially and ethnically diverse society, a gender and sexually diverse society, and it's all happening, and I'm gonna be part of it by thinking about how I can contribute to human advancement rather than trying to block at this advancement because I somehow will be decentered. I'm going to try to figure out how I can contribute to it. And that's those are the two different ways. And I, I think you can see it play out every day, one wanna, way or the other. I wanted to ask about that. I, I love that you brought that back in with, you know, the two choices, you know, looking at the past and the quote unquote glory of the past, whatever that was, or you can accept that things change and they typically change for the better right? One thing that we've talked about here on this podcast, we, we've covered a lot of different themes on this podcast. Um, usually we never get answers to questions except for your great one at the beginning of the show. So thank you again. <laughs> um, but one thing that we have covered is cancel culture, right? So somebody said something very, very offensive or wrong in the past, 10, 20, maybe even 30 years ago. I mean, I, I'm seeing some of the things on the news these days, not, not present day, but people that have said things in the past that have come up, and that's come back to haunt them, and then they've lost their jobs, and they've lost a lot. Of, they've lost their their well-being. They've lost their credibility. I kind of feel like you know I, I'm I'm struggling with it, Jackson, because obviously if somebody did something bad in the past or said something wrong in the past, they should be punished for it. Although if they've changed and they've adapted and they've become a better person, if they've broken the chains of the way they were raised and the way they were taught or whatever way that, that led them to say something like that offensive, and they're now an activist and they're now a positive person pushing forth positive change, you know, how do we treat those people? I'm a big believer, in it, and I know Dave Chappelle has said this too, once we lose the capacity to accept people that they can adapt and they can change, then, then we've got no hope in humankind. But I'm curious about what your thoughts about that issue, about that issue. And I'm not talking about somebody who says something offensive today and then they get canceled today, but opening up somebody's past. And if they said something, you know, what, what we consider offensive today, and then, you know, we don't look at how they've changed and they've evolved and now a person for positive, doing positive today. You know, what are your thoughts on that? I'm, really, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. No, thank you. And I appreciate that that's a very... It's a very important question, and, and, and I think, and I wrestle with it myself, I think that we're living in a time where the social norms are shifting rapidly, and I do think that there's, we're going to be litigating how to reconcile the new norms, whatever they are, around race, around gender, around sexuality, and, and a whole range of other uh, systemic inequalities and abuses. How do you reconcile the new way of thinking with the fact that there's millions billions of people on the planet as we speak who have participated in perpetuating those systems right up to the present. And who's the arbiter? So for example, like the classic case of after, you know, Me Too was, you know, the Louis C.K., the comedian who then nine months after he was sort of shamed into retreating from the public stage because of allegations, credible allegations of numerous sexual misconduct incidents with women, you know, colleagues of his and subordinates of his. He shows up on stage in a New York City nightclub nine months later without having been on the marquee, without having been publicized to do his comedy act, which is, by the way, you could argue that that's an act of abuse itself because the people sitting in the comedy club didn't go to the comedy club knowing that Louis C.K. was going to perform. So he kind of violated their integrity in a sense. 
but then the question was, what, what, who makes the decision that, okay, I've sat out for nine months, now I'm going to come back into society. Who's the person? And is there some kind of board that makes the decision? Of course, that's not practical on a micro scale. But on, think about that in every institution in our society, in families, in you know, transgressions within families that never made it to the public stage. What, who decides that that person can be now come back into community, if you will? Obviously, there's, there's a whole hierarchy of, of, sort of, um, of people who have a say in that. I mean, people who are directly harmed obviously have the first say, like the person who is the target of the abuse or the survivor of the violence or what have you has to have a say. But then... What about the larger society, the larger community deciding when is a person who has transgressed going to be done the penance that they need to do to be back into sort of civil society? And by the way, this gets complicated. So, for example, some white women who are really angry at white men for their transgressions, the white men's transgressions in a sexist way. Well, and I'm, and I'm talking about violence now. I'm talking about acting out in misogynist ways and sexist ways short of committing specific violence or sexual violence. Some of those white women are white people who themselves have engaged in racist behavior in their own lives in perpetuating racist systems. So, it, so if you start talking about intersectionality, it starts getting complicated. There are African-Americans who are Christian and cr who, are, who are participated in Christian anti-Semitism and Christian you know, Islamophobia, if you will, in their participation in the Christian uh, community. If, you, you know, even, though, even at the same time as they are victims on racial terms and sometimes in uh, gender and, and sexual terms. So some people have said, I mean, many people have said, I think you're going to hear calls for this increasing in the next few years, is we have to have some kind of system, whether it's truth and reconciliation commissions, whether it's, we have to have conversations like this, but on a much bigger scale to talk about what is the way to come back if you have transgressed, if you have, and I believe in redemption, I agree with Dave Chappelle, but I mean, obviously he's not the first person to say that. That's one of the reasons why um, there's a movement within, even, even within um, sexual assault for, you know, non-judicial punishment. Uh, what's the word? Uh, there's a, it's a movement that's, the word is escaping me. The, um, it's making restitution outside of the traditional legal system for transgressions. Because for example, we know it, when it comes to sexual assault, we know that lots of women and men and others who have been victims or targets or survivors of sexual violence, the first thing that they really want, they want the perpetrator to acknowledge that they perpetrated did harm to them and that they feel remorse for doing harm more than they want him to go to jail, be punished in a more formal legal system. If the only two choices are go to jail or not go to jail, and there's no other form of making restitution, if you will, that will both serve the needs of the victim, but also the society has deemed a legitimate way to make some kind of penance for your transgressions. I mean, I think we're going to be stuck in the same situation we're stuck in. For example, lots of women who have been victims of domestic and sexual violence don't want the guy to go to jail. They don't want their husband to be arrested. Black women, for example, who know that if they call the police in a domestic violence situation that their boyfriend or their husband or some other man who's been the, the perpetrator is going to be much more likely to be arrested. His life chances are going to be much diminished. His ability to be a provider for kids is going to be much diminished. So she often thinks, no, this, this is not what I want. I want the violence to stop. I want him to say, I'm sorry. I want him to be held accountable on some level. But do I want him to just be another statistic in the African-American man in, in the prison system? Is that going to help anybody? So you see, it's complicated. Your question is complicated. But I, I, and I feel, I always say this too. I, I, and I feel like I should rush to say it right now. 
I would never, and I have never, I think, self-righteous in my call to men to speak out by saying that somehow I've got it all figured out and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like this perfectly evolved man, which is ridiculous. I don't think it's true. I, and I have my own, you know, stuff, if you will. You don't have to be perfect. In fact, if you're waiting for men, for example, to be perfect in terms of their resume is completely free of any sexist thoughts or behaviors from childhood or from adolescence or even from young adulthood onward, for them to speak out, because a lot of men will say they don't speak out because they're not, who am I to speak? I, I've got my own baggage. I've got my own stuff that I got to work on. Who am I to tell other men? If we're waiting for that moment when men have perfectly figured out, we're, we're going to be waiting forever because there's no such man that I've ever met that could say that I have it all figured out. And that's very similar with white people. If a white person says, look, who am I to tell other white people to speak out about racism and to, you know, to organize or, or get out in the streets or what have you, because I myself have harbored racist feelings. I have impulses that I think are biased. I've actually done things that I feel like uh, kind of ashamed of. So I'm not going to say anything. If every white person who has that on their life resume doesn't act, guess what? It's a prescription for maintaining the status quo which is another way of saying that the person with privilege, the white person, the man, the heterosexual person, is actually using their privilege to end up tying themselves in all these sort of ethical knots, the result of which is to do nothing, the result of which is to maintain the status quo and therefore participate in illegitimate privilege. So you see how, I mean, how this all can go full circle. So I, I do think that it's easier, what should I say, <laughs> I'm saying this as a man, but women, and obviously Gwen is going to speak for herself, and people of color, when the subject is racism, have their own set of ideas about what they think needs to happen. And so if it was still in the hands of the dominant group to decide what is the collective accountability and what did that look like, and it didn't involve centrally the voices of the people who had been most harmed by that inequality or that injustice, then it would be reproducing injustice itself. I couldn't agree more with everything that you said. I mean, we're all human beings, right? We've all done wrong. If we start from that premise, it's just say, hey, you. No, no. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I knew she was going to say that. I, I almost said except Gwen, but I, I need her to accept. <laughs> I am an she, angel. She must have done something wrong. We're going we're gonna to do a whole podcast on that one day, Jackson. You should come on. It'll be fun. You could be the arbiter if you'd like. If we start with, hey, nobody is perfect. So just accept that about yourself. But what can you do better today in order to help things? I think that's great. You know, whatever penance that you need to personally do with your family, with any victims that you have in your past or, you know, with your God or with your whatever your deity is, then, then you got to do that. But telling somebody to, well, what can you do to, from today forward, I think is huge. I think that will get people more on board. I know everybody, whenever they hear anything that happens to somebody in the Me Too movement or something that comes out of somebody's past, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, everybody starts uh, going through their mind. They open up the photo album of their life and they think of, gee, what, did I ever do anything like that? Did, did, could somebody, quote unquote, misinterpret something that I did? I mean, in your mind, you tell yourself misinterpret, but the reality is you, you probably did something wrong and you start going through things. And then you know what you do? You cower, you become fearful and you close your mouth and you just kind of, you know, you, you go forward with your life. That's not going to change anything. I think start, starting with we know we nobody's perfect. What can you do to be better is the best foot forward, in my opinion. I, I, I don't know if you have any reactions to that. I think that's good. I do, but Quinn, did you want to say? Did you want to kick in? No, I had I had a question about I had a question about something else, but I think I think one of the things 
I think one of the, you know, hey, here's an example. Uh, when uh, Kavanaugh was up for his position and people were talking about his yearbook and people wanted to say, well, are you going to really blame somebody who wrote something in their yearbook? Shouldn't we let that go? And the answer is complicated. The answer is, yes, you let it go if the person is a different person. The problem was, was that he was not different. He was lying about the meaning of what he wrote in the yearbook, which suggested that he had not evolved. Now, if he had said, yes, I wrote these sexist things, this is the way that I viewed women, I was a 17-year-old kid, then that would be a completely different story. It was the fact that he was hiding the meaning of these things with these blatant lies, like saying, you know, well, no, I don't need to repeat them. But um, that would be an example of, it depends, how's the person actually evolved? I appreciate that. Although I, and we could parse the, the debate about Brett Kavanaugh in so many different ways. It's, it's such an incredibly interesting and important and consequential historical event, if you will, because he's a, you know, got a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court, you know, I mean, but it makes logical sense from his position. If his overarching goal, which it clearly was, was to be confirmed, not to do some sort of public penance in a way that was elevating the conversation and bringing more men into the, you know, setting an example for how you can be acknowledging your past and saying you've grown from it. Because I think he knew that the moment that he admitted the truth of some of his past acts, the politics would shift and he wouldn't be able to get confirmed, yeah. which would be in tension with or in direct contradiction of his central goal, which is to be on the Supreme Court. So in a sense, he did act rationally for his immediate self-interest. And by the way, you know, Donald Trump is the person who nominated him. And Donald Trump has certainly exemplified that you can take a hard line, just deny, lie, evade, but almost never say you're sorry, almost never acknowledge any kind of vulnerability or weakness. And a certain number of tens of millions of people in this country are going to reward you. And they're going to actually, maybe, maybe not, you know, you're maybe not going to be seen as an ethical exemplar, but you're going to achieve your goal. He was elected president, Donald Trump. He lied. He was lying throughout the whole campaign. So in that sense, it was, you know, I don't think it was irrational of Brett Kavanaugh to take that position. I don't, I'm not defending it. I was, I just think it's rational uh, self-interest. I do want to say one thing about this. It's sort of a ancillary to point to this discussion about Brett Kavanaugh, but I think the mainstream discourse about the Kavanaugh hearings is, who do you believe? Do you believe Brett Kavanaugh or Christine Blasey Ford? And I don't think that that's the right metric or the right binary question, because I think that the, the vast majority of the public believed Christine Blasey Ford, that she was telling the truth. I think where the difference was, was not whether you believed her or not, it's whether you believed her and thought that what she claimed meant that Brett Kavanaugh was unfit to serve in the Supreme Court, or you believed her and thought, you know what, he's a 17-year-old kid, he was a 17-year-old guy, guys do stupid things like that, it was abusive, but get over it and move on. I think that was the real metric. It's not whether you believed her or not, it's whether you thought it was serious enough thought to- it was important, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. merit of fitness. Yeah, there's something, I, I think with the time, there's so much. Oh yeah, well, I'm gonna to try to sneak this in. This is a tangential. This is not something that you have written about, but it's something that's been on my mind, especially when I read your work about uh, women reporters, that predominantly elementary school teachers are women. And with this discussion about opening schools, opening schools, I cannot help but notice that a lot of times when there's a discussion about education, that people are saying it's for the children. We're gonna make sure the money goes right to the children. And I think that that is code for this profession of teaching, which is female 
dominated is saying you do not matter. Like there is not an understanding that money towards that profession is actually what enables the school and the education to work. And so often it's made very clear, it's we're going to make sure the money goes right to the children as opposed to the teachers. Whereas the teachers require a degree, lots of work that has to do outside of the perimeter of the timeframe. And as we're learning of the pandemic, that they're supposed to be the defenders of children when it comes to abuse and the identifiers of it. And yet the teachers are not called out by name. They're vilified as money going to a teacher's union or something like that. I'm wondering, do you see that this has to do with the fact that many elementary school teachers are women? Well, I mean, that's a very interesting observation. I hadn't thought of it directly like that. I mean, I, th I think there's so much hypocrisy and doublespeak around care and concern for children that is total BS in a country that's so poor at serving the needs of children <laughs> and yet making rhetorical um, homage to how important children are and the future of the country is children. And yet we're probably in the Western, certainly Western industrialized world, by far the most child unfriendly society. And so partly that is related to the fact that women are in the caregiving roles, both disproportionately as mothers, even in heterosexual families, mothers still after 50 years of modern feminist agitation around this very question. And again, I don't accept myself from this. I mean, I, I, I don't want to be self-righteous on this either. I, I appreciate that that's something that I could be critiqued for as well. But women tend to be have way more responsibilities for the, the care of and the raising of children in the family and in the home, as well as in the schools and in the elementary schools. And there's, there's complex reasons for that. I mean, part of it is the stigma of working with children as a low status profession, which is another reflection of how little we regard children. If it's a low status profession to work with children, what does it mean we think about children? And by the way, there's feminist theorists have been saying for about 40 at least years, Dorothy Dinnerstein and others, that until you have men in caregiving roles with infants and small and young children, not just like, you know, middle schools, but, you know, children and K through six and, and you know, nursery school, pre preschool, right up through kindergarten and the early years, until you have more men in those roles, until you have more fathers who are intimately involved in the raising of their children, intimately involved, you're, you have this structural, you know, sort of psychic and structural and material inequality that reproduces men's dominance. But a, a happy way to tell this story, I think, or at least one angle on this discussion that's very positive is over the last couple of years, even after the election of Donald Trump, is that uh, all these strikes in really conservative states by teachers for better wages, better working conditions, um, better benefits, got, mass got met with massive support, even from populations in these right-wing red states. And the mm -hmm. teachers' unions were not being vilified in that, in that discourse. They were actually being seen as the champions of their community who were fighting for the means to educate the children in that community. But when you actually get beyond the rhetoric and the propaganda that so many of these people are, uh, are immersed in on talk radio and Fox uh, News channel, you find a lot of these people who are quote unquote conservative actually share lots of progressive ideas. It's just, you have to get through the propaganda and you have to get through the, the narrowness of their uh, you know, understanding of these issues. And once you do that, 
you find you have a lot of allies. I mean, public opinion polls have shown for decades that there are huge numbers of the population support health care in various ways. They support, you know, universal health care. They support uh, better funding on education. They support, I mean, on and on. There's a bunch of data to prove this. It's not just me, you know, throwing it out. And yet you see that the actual policies, even of the Democratic Party, often don't reflect popular support for certain policies. The question is, how, why? where's the disconnect? And, I, and I'm not saying it's the only piece of it, but a big piece of it is is propaganda and how, you know, Noam Chomsky has been writing about this for 50 years, at least. It's like thought control in democratic societies. How are, how are people understanding their reality? Where's the narration, the discourse, the political analysis, the journalistic discourse? Who owns the media? Who owns the, you know, the means of production of intellectual material, especially when it comes to media? And then how is that, being, uh, how is that affecting how people understand their own experience? And I, by the way, one of the things I find fascinating, well, this, is, this is all topics that we're exploring without, de without detail in the film that my colleagues and I are making that's coming out in September, is like so many white working class men voting against, quote unquote, their economic interests. Why are they voting for the party of the plutocracy when in fact so much of what they're saying is the elites, the elites are controlling us. Meanwhile, the elites, they're, they're voting for the elites in the, you know, in the Koch brothers universe or the or the Republican plutocrats whose main goal is tax cuts for the wealthy, but these working class guys are voting Republican because somehow they're anti-elite. It's, it's absurd on so many levels. But then you look at what, where they're getting their information, where the analysis is coming from. You, if, you, if you listen to talk right-wing talk radio, and like I said, Fox, and decades worth of this sort of discourse. And by the way, in rural America, because I mean, with the decline of traditional, you know, I, I know I'm going down a little bit too far down this road, you know, political discourse uh, and political sort of um, reality. But in rural America, the main form of education around these matters is not, you know, workplace sort of, you know, discussions about workers' rights. It's turn on the TV. It's turn on talk radio. And what you get when you turn on TV and talk radio, you get Rupert Murdoch's version of the world. You get these extremely wealthy sort of right-wing, the Koch brothers who are funding, you know, this talk. That's what you're getting, right? That's the currency of discourse in so many of these communities. But if you get, if you work through it, and I've spent a lot of time in red states, if you actually work through it and have real conversations with people, you often people are shaking their heads, agreeing with you. And I'm thinking to myself, do you realize what I'm saying is like, this is all left critical theory discourse that I'm saying, and you're shaking your head, and yet you're voting for Trump. Do you understand the disconnect? And the answer is no, they don't understand the disconnect because they've never even heard someone articulate it in that way. That's why Bernie Sanders had so much popularity in certain parts of the country in red state America where people, when Bernie Sanders lost to uh, Hillary Clinton, they voted for Donald Trump. It's like people are saying, why would you vote for Hillary, excuse me, Bernie Sanders, and you resonate with Bernie Sanders, and then he doesn't win, so you vote for Donald Trump? To me, it's like, so, it's like oh my God. But has it ex been explained to them that if you actually want to advance the causes that Bernie Sanders advances, why don't you support the candidate that Bernie Sanders himself supported after he lost, which is because Bernie Sanders himself understands that if you want to advance working people's, you know, fortunes, that Donald Trump is a disaster. So I think it's important to think about the failures of public education in this society, and then the right-wing control of media discourse for the past, you know, half century, if we want to understand why people are making some of the choices they're making. In the years of your work, where has there been an area where you have seen a real progress in mentality that has just made you just very happy that you've 
you know, launched this movement and that you've been part of it? What is something that you've seen? Thank you. What occurs to me immediately in, in response to your question, uh, Gwen, is um, I went to the uh, Women's March in Los Angeles with my then 16-year-old son the day after Donald Trump was inaugurated. My wife and many of my friends went to the big march in Washington, D.C. on the same day. That was when all over the country there were these big women's marches, at the time biggest social sort of protest event in American history, which has now been supplanted, I think, by the multi-day racial justice protests over the past several months, but only because it's extended over months and months rather than one day. When I walked out into the mainstream of that with my son, March in, in Los Angeles, which was the biggest in the country, 750,000. It was like energizing and amazing. But one of the things that struck me really powerfully was how many men were out in the streets. It was enormous numbers of men. And, I, and when I say enormous numbers, I'm talking like 20, 25%. And my wife and five different women that I know who went to the Washington DC protest, I asked them, what did, what did you see in terms of the male participation in the women's marches? And they were saying, same thing, quarter to a, th I, mean, I mean, literally a quarter of the people to a third of the people. Now that might be a little over, overstated. The mainstream discourse, however, about the women's marches barely mentioned that men were even there. It was just like, the w women have come forward, women are marching. And I appreciate that. And I understand that that was the central organizing and energy principle of those marches. But one of the things that's been encouraging about the racial justice protests, and many people have remarked upon this, is how many white people are out in the streets. Like Portland, Oregon, for example, which is a very white city, has night after night of protests. Most of the people out in the streets are white. And a lot of people are saying, this is great, because finally we have white people responding to the challenge that civil rights you know, activists were talking about for 50, 60 years, which is... White people need to speak out about racism. White people need to organize other white people and hold them accountable. Well, I and others have been saying, and, and obviously feminist women before me, and to this day have been saying, men need to be speaking out about sexism and men's violence against women and misogyny and, and being stronger allies and publicly taking risks and everything else. And I think that that's happening. I think it, it wasn't narrated in the women's marches, I have to say. And by the way, that to me is not a good thing because yes, you want women, you, want to, you don't want to take the spotlight from women. I, I appreciate that. But you want to say to men, there are men out there who are just like you, who feel like They've been silent, and it's time to, to, to break that silence. I think I've been in a position more than most people to see how many men respond. I'm not saying every man is automatically hearing a message like this or a speech that I give or somebody else gives or whatever is going to immediately become, you know, an activist. That's, a, that's ridiculous. But I've seen so many examples of men across class, race, ethnicity. I work in all these, you know, conservative areas as well as these progressive enclaves. How many men respond positively? Once you get beyond the immediate defensiveness and sometimes the like, they want to check you out. They want to, they want to make sure that you're not just sort of fulfilling some cliche that you're ganging up on men or that you're, you're trying to virtue signal how cool you are to women or whatever. I mean, I, some of that is so predictable, it's embarrassing. But once you get beyond that, how many men are willing to have these conversations? And how many men are willing to say, you know what? It's not just altruism. It's not just care about others that motivates you. A colleague and friend of mine, Michael Kaufman, he's an American, but he's lived in uh, Toronto, Canada for you know 40 years. And he's one of the founders of the White Ribbon Campaign. The White Ribbon Campaign is the largest global movement of men working against men's violence against women. White Ribbon Campaign. It was founded by a group of men, including Michael Kaufman in Toronto, 
two years after the Montreal massacre in Montreal in 1989, when a white guy came into an engineering school, angry man, young man, separated the women from the men in this classroom and murdered 14 women in cold blood. It was called the Montreal massacre. It was a horrific event and one of the big sort of historic events in the 20th century in Canada. And it shook up the whole country. In this country, it got barely noticed in the news cycle of this country. But in, in Canada, huge thing. These group of men started the White Ribbon Campaign, but that was in 19... 91. In 1987, the same person, Michael Kaufman, wrote an article called The Triad of Men's Violence. And the triad of men's violence was connecting men's violence against women, men's violence against other men, and men's violence against themselves, and all the interplays between those three. And in my work, I've been talking about this for 35 you know, years at least, is that they're all connected. All these forms of violence are connected. And that so when men, when we're trying to challenge men to speak out, it's not just men's violence against women. It's also men's violence against other men. It's also suicide, which is violence turned inward. And you know the pr primary perpetrators of suicide? It's men. And by the way, when it comes to suicide by gun, it's white men. And white men over the age of 50 are by far the fastest growing category of suicide by gun. So if you think about, and, and you, you, we talk about like white male precarity. That's another, that's another term that's very interesting when you think about the, the deaths of despair in white rural America, how many men are taking their lives, how many men are, and women are too, and I understand that, but I mean, I'm focusing on men, uh, becoming, you know, methadone addicts and drug addicts and alcoholics and, you know, responding to these macro shifts in the economy by, you know, sort of self-medicating and then harming themselves and people around them. And it's, it's kind of a sad situation to say the least, right? And that's part of the reason why Trump was elected, because because I think some of them frustratingly just threw up their hands and said, we got to shake things up. And they actually made things worse. How anyways, the point is, if you respond, if you're trying to repeal to men by saying it's both out of social justice concern and altruistic concern for others, like for women, but it's also out of self concern and self-interest. And it's also about you as a father or an uncle or an older man who has boys in your life who look to you. It's helping them be fuller human beings because look at all the dysfunctional men out there. Look at all the adult men who are who are hurting themselves and others, who are living lives of quiet desperation. Look at all the men who are taking out their pain on others. All the school shooters and mass murderers and, and all kinds of, almost all men. And, and all around the world, you look all around the world and the dysfunctional masculinity that causes so many other problems, not just for women, but for men and boys. If you have concern and compassion for them, instead of seeing feminism as your antagonist and women who are trying to be treated with respect and dignity as somehow your antagonist, see them as your, actually as your, um, as not only as your ally, but actually they're pointing the way toward, to, for you being a better person and a healthier person, when you can get beyond the initial defensiveness, so many men can respond. And again, I'm not naive. I think some men will still, you know, have a sort of ideological or other barriers to them taking this in. But I've done it enough and I've worked in this area enough to know that if you can get through the door and you can have these robust conversations and not just, and I'm talking about interactive dialogues, not, I'm kind of lecturing right now, but I'm not talking about a lecture. I'm talking about an interactive dialogue, and that's why, you know, workshops and everything else. You'll find, I think a lot of people can, a lot of men can respond positively. And I've seen it. It's not, this is not some prospective, you know, sort of theoretical model. This is what I and my colleagues have been doing in racially diverse environments with men in military, in the sports culture, in schools, in labor unions, in blue collar workplaces, in white collar, for decades. But 
getting into those spaces is the challenge and making this stuff normative as part of the educational experience, for example, making it a routine part of education, not, not just somebody who chooses to take a specific course or who goes to see a certain lecture or tune into a certain great podcast like, like yours. I'm talking about building it in, scaling it up to build it into normative practice. And by the way, I think one of the great things about the racial justice protests is that because there's now this overdue reckoning with the long history of deep racism in this country in a way that really has never happened before, really. It's amazing, really, what's happening. I think that at least the ground is being tilled for a deeper dive into, into sexism as well. And because if you really want to be true to your quote-unquote intersectional thinking, you have to talk about how racism is marbled into sexism and sexism is marbled into racism and heterosexism is marbled into all of them. And part of that dive is having this conversation with men. And men, by the way, across race and ethnicity and, and every other category. And I, I think there's reason to be hopeful. And I, and, I, and I know from my own experience that there is reason to be hopeful. Thank you, Jackson. I'm so excited. I was just so lovely to, I mean, it's really lovely to get a chance to talk to you. Like I said, I think when I emailed you, I've had my students watch your TED talk and it's really exciting to be able to actually, well, I guess Zoom with you <laughs> to actually hear you speak. I'm going to link your website to the, to the show notes, but if you could just give, is there a way for people to get in touch with you? Well, the best way is through my website, jacksoncats.com. Okay. There's contact information there. If you're interested in my work, that's the good portal to my books, my films, my articles, and to get in touch with me, jacksoncats.com. And I've read um, The Macho Paradox, but what was, you You have another, do you have a book that was more recent? Yes. My second book, which was published in 2016, about eight months before the election, was called <laughs> Man Enough. Man and Enough, that's right, okay. The new film that's coming out in September is going to have the same title with an updated subtitle. It's going to be something like American, you know, the American presidency and white male identity from Nixon to Trump or something like that. It's a great okay. title. It's a really great title. Just, I, I love it. This, this was a lot of fun. I mean, I learned a lot just by preparing for this and just during this conversation. And I, I just want to thank you for educating. Thank thanks you. And, and, and Gwendolyn, it's, it's been fun. And thanks for indulging me and in, in, going on these riffs. And, and, and maybe, you know, we'll do it again sometime um, in the future. I love your podcast. And, it, and I think any way of getting not just philosophical discourse, because philosophical is too limited in the way that I think you're engaging with issues beyond insular debates within philosophy. But as th that being a, one of the foundations, I appreciate that. And I, to get it out to wider audiences in any way you can, I think is a great thing and, and power to you. I thought oh, you were going to say the problem with the philosophical discourse is you never get no. an answer. I thought that's what no, he was going to say. What? I was hoping I that's what he was going to I was just saying. I was just, I was just You know hoping. what, Rudy? I am going to work on my lawyer jokes um, in between our recordings. So you better, you better just wait. <laughs> go ahead. I hate lawyers. So just go ahead. <laughs> okay, Jackson. Have a good afternoon. And thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and you can reach out on Instagram, good is in the details pod or email good is in the details pod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Any thoughts, questions, concerns, ideas. Yeah. We'll even read it out on the next podcast. Okay. Well, everybody stay safe, wear your masks, socially distance. And until next time, bye.